there's not really much evidence that the, the, the new sort of socialist mini trend in American politics is actually coming from a deep, structurally significant connection to the working class, but is just the sort of more hyper-liberalized version of this sort of, you know, new professional managerial class liberalism. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservice from the Niskanen Center, and welcome to the Vital Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the maybe mythical, maybe manifest, muddled moderate majority of Americans, drawing upon history, biography, and current events. Today, I have the honor of talking to Professor Matthew Karp, a Madison Associate Professor of History at Princeton University, where he specializes in the U.S. Civil War era and the study of the broader 19th century world. He received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2011 and is the author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of U.S. Foreign Policy. He's currently at work on a book about the emergence of anti-slavery mass politics in the United States with a particular interest in the radical vision of the Republican Party in the 1850s. Welcome, Matt. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Happy to be here. Glad to have you here. How have you been faring in this pandemic? You know, uh, it's a strange time. It's a time out of time, right? I think for so many people. And, um, it, you know, in my case, it's overlapped with the, the birth of a child, which is Congratulations. already a time out of time. So um, that's that's wonderful. Uh, also, you know, disorienting in its own way. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in comparative perspective, I've been incredibly fortunate and uh, have nothing to complain about, really. Great. Uh, to what extent is instruction at Princeton this semester in person or online? We're online exclusively. I mean, I think there were there was special dispensation for certain, you know, studio courses or, you know, certain lab type things. Um, and, and maybe if you really wanted to get out to do a hybrid thing, you could do it because there are some students now that are back. But uh, I've been entirely, I think, seminar style instruction, lecture instruction is all online. So tell me something about uh, your background. How did you find your way to your academic subject of interest? Yeah, it's interesting. I um, or it's interesting to me. <laughs> I uh, I started, um, you know, in some ways, my book, which is on, you know, the relationship between U.S. foreign policy and slavery, slaveholders, the, the slaveholding class before the Civil War. I wrote an undergraduate thesis at Amherst College where I was taking courses with uh, Gordy Levin the uh, great diplomatic historian who, you know, is, I think, has taught actually a lot of uh, a lot of uh, American diplomatic uh, thinkers in some ways uh, at Amherst College. So I started with a kind of almost an interest in 20th century foreign policy. And I brought some of those interests, the interest in kind of ideological and geopolitical conflict that spanned the kind of, you know, Second World War, Cold War era to the 19th century to some extent. And that had, that fueled an undergraduate thesis. And then in graduate school, I worked with some Southern historians and I really came to see the conflict between slavery and um, anti-slavery as a kind of foundational ideological strategic conflict in the 19th century world. And that fueled my first book that in some ways is fueling the book project I'm working on now, which is about anti-slavery politics, the emergence of anti-slavery as a mass politics in the 1850s before the Civil War. Those main currents have been, I've been working with for some time. The relationship between that and the sort of the writing that I've done on contemporary politics is, is still harder for me to suss out. I think basically <laughs> it had to do with Bernie Sanders. Beyond that, I'm not sure whether it's actually a separate project in some ways. And But I've enjoyed, you know, taking part in that, uh, the political discourse too, in the last, you know, four or five years. How much uh, overlap of views uh, is there between your book and books like, let's say, Walter Johnson's River of Dark Dreams or Sven Beckert's Empire of Cotton? 
Um, yeah, there's a there, there's there's considerable overlap in subject material. I would say. Um, I think in some ways, though, uh, to the extent that listeners are you know familiar with with these books as kind of commentaries on the, the great question of slavery's relationship to capitalism, which which they are, and I think are primarily understood as such for Beckert and for Johnson. You know, my book is much more about you know slavery's relationship to U.S. statecraft and about the power of slaveholders over U.S. foreign policy, the military and naval policy, the way that slaveholders sort of use the state, the outward looking state to sort of shape their ends and how that kind of international ambition or international calculus, both ideological and strategic, shaped Annabelle politics and led to the Civil War. So in some sense, it's more it's much more forthrightly political than these other histories that want to make a contribution to the broader history of capitalism, if you will, I kind of dodge that question. Um, on the other hand, I feel in some ways more satisfied with the claims that I make than 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 th- that, that broader controversy where I'm not fully persuaded um, by some of the bolder claims about, you know, slavery is the root of American capitalism and so on. What does interest me about this is that a, a lot of the historians of American intellectual conservatism get their start with books like Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind. Uh, and these traditionalist conservatives really did present the slaveholding South as kind of Camelot, uh, this sort of enclosed, organic, almost medieval kingdom where people were not concerned with technology. And in fact, you know, Russell Kirk was famously a technophobe. Uh, he referred to automobiles as uh, mechanical Jacobins. Um, and, and yet it turns out in your scholarship and, and others that, you know, in fact, the, the South was very capitalistic, very technologically oriented, very sophisticated, not otherworldly at all. Yeah, that's an old line of, of thought, right? Mark Twain said that, you know, Walter Scott caused the Civil War by, you know, <laughs> diluting, you know, romancing, you know, Southern elites into a dream of a, of a feudal bygone era. But my picture of slaveholders in that sense very much corresponds to what, what, Johnson and Beckert and others have found about the South's conscious embrace of, of, of a certain kind of modernity that they saw actually as characteristic of the mid-19th century world, the, the rising forces of, of empire, racialized, coerced labor, you know, well beyond even the Atlantic world, beyond the United States, but, but beyond uh, globally in the 1850s. And um, the compatibility of their of their social system with the needs of global capitalism uh, is something that they they didn't fear that world that was coming into being in the 19th century as much as they embraced certain aspects of it. What they didn't embrace was democracy. What they didn't embrace was mass politics in the in the way that it began to emerge in the North in that period, which is what I'm writing up about now, how for all of the South's supposed fear of the world, they weren't overthrown by the world. They were overthrown by domestic politics. So uh, speaking of Jacobins, uh, around 2016, uh, you became known as one of the more politically engaged young academics, uh, writing frequently in Jacobin magazine in support of Senator Bernie Sanders' insurgent candidacy. And you were a contributing editor at Jacobin, which as I understand it, is not formally affiliated with the Democratic Socialists of America, but has a kind of general alignment of views. Is that correct to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a DSA member myself, although largely inactive lately. Okay. And in general terms, uh, what do you see as the value of a grounding in academic history when it comes to assessing developments in current politics? I have thought about this. I mean, I've struggled to make this connection in some ways. I think probably the best formulation I can come up with is that it 
in my case anyway, it has something to do with a, a sense of narrative and a, a, a way to kind of make sense of developments over time. I found that in with the emergence of the Sanders campaign in, in late 2015, early 2016, the media, the, the sort of mainstream media, the liberal media, what you will, um, sort of lacked a really convincing narrative for what the Bernie movement stood for, where it came from, what its antecedents were. They kept trying to sort of squash Bernie into the, 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 the square peg of Bernie, into the round hole of Howard Dean or Bill Bradley or Dennis Kucinich or some sort of, you know, previous left wing insurgents, you know, who appealed mostly to kind of aging hippies or something, uh, you know, wine track voters. And, and I, I felt like, I don't know, my not that I'm an expert in 20th century politics, frankly, or, or, or um, you know, even the United States since, you know, Second World War, but I felt like Bernie's both in his demands and in his um, and in the coalition that he was calling into being pretty early on was speaking to something else was speaking to some, you know, older currents on the left and in US politics, and pointed the way towards a different future. And so I mean, I think by now that narrative has caught up. And I don't know if I'm not trying to say that I was the first person to say that, you know, Bernie identified with the old left and was, you know, more FDR than anti-war protester, even though he was an anti-war protester. So I, I don't want to go too far down that road. But but I think I, I, for me, I think placing and trying to understand the Sanders campaign in real time in the context of you know, fighting these narrative wars was something that historians are, you know, used to doing and have skills at doing. And that sustained me a little bit. And then, you know, over the, in the, in the time since, not just sort of week to week all across the campaign, but trying to make sense of what that, that first Sanders campaign run meant, what its successes and failures were, the same thing for the second run, essentially. And what the, in a broader sense, I mean, maybe this is what we're going to talk about today. What's happening to the Democratic Party? Uh, in these last, you know, five to 10 years in relation to the Sanders insurgency, et cetera, but also in relation to its broader history, where where it's come from and where it's going, what's changed and what that means for the left. I have found it useful to kind of be anchored in some sense in this ideological perspective that is, you know, the Jacobin worldview that, that in some ways gives me strength to kind of um, a solid ground to push off from as I as I explore, but I try not to be too dogmatic about it. I think it's good to have a porthole with which to see the world, but you know the world moves around you, and you should be able to move with it too. So I'm trying to do that in these last five years, which have seen a lot of victories and defeats for the Jacobin worldview, if you will. Um, you've actually uh, responded with remarkably good humor to some of the attempts to dunk on you as a Princeton professor uh, lecturing to the masses about what they ought to believe. I, I think at some point you called yourself, what, the J.D. Vance of liberal suburbia? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. There's no uh, there's no denying that. And there's no point in um, obscuring the, you know, the modest comfort of North Bethesda uh, that I grew <laughs> up in. And uh, that I was bred in, and 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 the extent to which I think that does inform some of my hypersensitivity to and awareness of the downside of the sort of new democratic strategy of winning, you know, the suburban professional managerial class, where I feel like I know that world, I know that world's values, I in some ways can't, um, I don't want to sound like I actually even hate everything about that world, like I'm some sort of class traitor, because I still inhabit that world in, in so many ways, even though I live in Brooklyn now, which is, but essentially the suburbanized, you know, professional managerial part of Brooklyn. And I, I can't 
I can't pretend that I'm, you know, leading some sort of like vanguard in resistance to that world. And yet at the same time, I do think I have a perspective on what its limits are as a, as a vehicle for uh, the construction of, say, social democracy that is worth heeding. I don't know. Well, we all uh, eagerly await the appearance of Montgomery County elegy. Um, I, I... <laughs> that would be beautiful. That would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> I really did uh, want to talk about uh, a recent article you wrote for Jacobin called The Politics of a Second Gilded Age, which struck me as interesting for a lot of reasons, articulating a kind of intra-left debate that I don't know much about, frankly, um, but also drawing on uh, some of your, I guess, training and instincts as a historian. So let me just start off by asking you about how you begin it. Uh, you said that there were three big winning trends that came out of the 2020 election. Uh, one of them was increased participation in the democratic process, given that about two thirds of eligible voters did cast a ballot that made 2020 the highest turnout election in 120 years. Second, you mentioned partisan polarization. Uh, and you uh, referenced Liliana Mason, the political scientist, who says that party affiliation has now become a mega identity. Uh, voters now get meaning and belonging from tribal political affiliations of the sort they used to get from the union hall or the neighborhood club. And then third, uh, what you called America's headlong march toward a party system almost entirely decoupled from the politics of class. Uh, and the 2020 election did, I think, accelerate the long smoldering dynamic that has seen the parties in effect switching their historic bases, uh, with Republicans winning more and more non-college educated working class votes, while Democrats win more of the votes of affluent professionals and managers. Um, and given your background as a scholar of the 19th century, you mentioned that to you the current political dynamic seems more like the politics of the Gilded Age of the post-Civil War decades than maybe what's the more popular analogy on the left uh, of the current moment to Europe in the 1930s. Uh, can you just tell me a bit more about how you see this as being like the Gilded Age in some ways? I mean, all historical analogies are, are speculations, you know, suggestions. They're very easy to pick apart and to, and to dunk on, if you will. That's the nature uh, of, of their existence. They're frequently sort of, I've, I've said, I think before that they're, you know, they serve as this kind of neat little garnish to an op-ed that, you know, either a self-promoting historian or a, you know, um, uh, a, you know, slightly tired and bored columnist, you know, grasps <laughs> for it to kind of add a little bit of flavor to, um, a, you know, a humdrum take. But I also think they're important. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've, I've defended them for a long time now as a sort of a, as, as, as a way to sort of think beyond the, the kind of, you know, the fugue state of the present that's sort of always with us and, and continues to consume us, you know, ever more overwhelmingly in, you know, the news cycle, the speed and the, the comprehensiveness of the news cycle. So, yeah. And the analogies that have been in play have not been, have not satisfied me at all. Like, you know, both on the, both liberals and uh, leftists for a variety of reasons, and maybe even, you know, centrists too, to the extent that there's such a tribe, have really grabbed a hold of the sort of interwar fascist analogy in terms of Trump and more broadly, what the politics of resistance to Trump stand for and, and how to understand, you know, the dangers of the moment and what American politics looks like. And I just found, and sort of a lesser variety of that that you, that you see, but also with some regularity, is the sort of moral drama of basically the Civil War era where, you know, the, the new GOP, the, the, the GOP is, a, is a new confederacy in some sense. Um, and I just found that neither of those analogies actually corresponded to my 
intellectual or visceral sense of what the moment is. I don't think we're on the verge of an apocalyptic civil war or global war against fascism, you know, which is literally the case in both of those analogies rely on the kind of moral and narrative momentum of there being a, you know, an Armageddon showdown with these forces of evil that basically cleanses them from the world. And, you know, it's, these are, these are useful in, in very different ways for, you know, for the left wants to see it as like, okay, we're rallying the troops to sort of, you know, and we're sort of, you know, glorifying our own participation in, in forming a popular front against the dreaded enemy. And for liberals, it's like everybody get in line you know, you don't want to be, you know, the German KPD, you know, fighting the social fascist that lets Hitler into power. Everybody's got to get in line. Anyone who's not fighting with us is literally against us. So it, there's there's sort of like a, both a disciplining and, a, and an aggrandizing effect in these analogies. And I, I, I just don't think that that corresponds to the actual fabric of what's happening in American politics, which to me points towards, you know, a kind of a, a frustrating extension of, of the contemporary muddle and gridlock rather than a sort of satisfyingly cathartic encounter with the enemy. And yeah, and so the, so the Gilded Age was an attempt to kind of instrumentalize that and out that, that, that feeling or, or put that feeling into an analogy, less that I'm so committed to like, this is a one-to-one correspondence to the politics <laughs> of 1880. But this is an era when, you know, yeah, as I said, I think that we, you know, it it, ca- it does capture some of the, the fact that our politics have a distinctive intensity that was not really there, say, in in, in for much of the 20th century in terms of ter- the turnout figures testified to that. The uh, intensity of kind of cultural partisan polarization testifies to that. There is a, uh, a peculiarity of that 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 is worth noting that sets, you know, this era apart from, say, 2004 or 1976 or, you know, 1956 even. So I think that's worth noting, but that, that's why I found the Gilded Age useful, because I think the other part is, is and the key part of the article was really the third claim about, about class, what I call, or political scientists really call, class dealignment, where, you know, across much of that 20th century order, and maybe this was just a great historic exception, as, as many have come to view the, the sort of short 20th century. But, you know, the American politics looked like most politics across the industrialized world, where the party of the left center um, was supported by the bulk, the vast bulk of, of the working class. In fact, our politics was basically class polarized at similar rates to uh, many European countries, even though the Democrats were never themselves a party of the working class in terms of their leadership and orientation. They were the party that the working class voted for. And this alignment has been, you know, completely uh, has completely disintegrated. In the last 50 years, it's been a slow process, but then it's really rapidly accelerated in the last five years. And that was the kind of point I wanted to make uh, in the piece is that this is, yes, a product of long term trends, uh, if you will, globalization, automation, the weakening of unions, the neoliberal turn in you know, macroeconomics, et cetera, that have all sort of applied downward pressure on these, you know, working class alignments to left and left center parties and politics, uh, you know, concerns about immigration and sort of, you know, cultural belonging, et cetera. But that there's also been a hype, it's gone into hyperdrive in the last five years. If you look at the electoral numbers, if you look at the difference between say the Obama coalition and the Biden coalition in, in, in 20, 2012 to 2020, uh, where, the Democrats are no longer in any really meaningful sense a party of the working class. It's, it's, nor are the Republicans, I should say. Uh, the working class is divided. And this was where the Gilded Age comes in because, you know, in the, in that, in that period, and I would include the, the Gilded 
you know, in, in academic history, we have a journal called the Journal of the Gilded and, Progr Gilded and Progressive Age, you know, the, mm -hmm. or the Journal of the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era. It's a very unwieldy title. But that mm -hmm. broad period from, you know, 1870 to 1920, if you will, where the, the, the parties were fiercely competitive and yet there was little, and they argued about culture and, and also economics, but there was little class basis and in some ways, little ideological daylight between them in terms of arrangements of, you know, political economy and the, the, the relationship between class and power in society, the, the shape of American government and the shape of the economy. Um, these things weren't really in contention in part, I think, because the parties did not correspond to you know, basic material interests. And it was only in the New Deal period. I mean, this is the history that this is my read of the history that fuels this argument. It was only in the New Deal period when when that alignment, something like that alignment was achieved uh, in the in the Roosevelt era, that the left broadly was able to actually achieve some significant structural transformation of the state and the economy that produced really substantive equality, or at least relative equality. And yes, it was, you know, it had limitations and it was curtailed and it, it had exclusions. And we all know the sort of sordid history of, of parts of the New Deal. But it was really meaningful. It showed up in the statistics. It showed, you know, on, on inequality. It showed up uh, at the level of, of, of lived experience for so many in the working class. And that was about a certain kind of class alignment that I feel like in our era, we're, we're drifting away from, not towards. You also mentioned that this specter of class dealignment is treated in different ways by liberal commentators, none of which you seem to approve of. Uh, you say that they tend to respond with denial, celebration, or resignation. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think den the denial uh, piece has weakened as people are really starting to process the 2020 results. That was a stronger element after 2016 and to some extent after 2018 or in the initial delight over, say, the Georgia election. The denial narrative is basically like, pointing to the half of the working class that the Democrats, you know, do gain support from and saying, this is the working class, you know, and, and, and sort of, I, I think ultimately, I, I understand the origin of this complaint, but I think it has been used more dishonestly than honestly. The idea that when you say the working class, you only, when anyone says the working class, they only mean the white working class. And so to talk about the Democrats losing the working class is, is to, is to obscure the existence of, you know, black workers, Latino workers, Asian workers who still vote Democrat, et cetera. That's not true. I mean, that no, some people may have said that, but that's, you know, sure, like Marco Rubio might say that, but that's not the basis of my critique. The point is that the, the working class is divided and the votes show a deepening, the trend of the votes show a deepening division. So I think for most part, the liberals who have been trying to kind of you know, push the idea that class alignment isn't a thing, have um, have gone quiet or are, 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 are moving on to a different narrative. And so I think the second the second more substantive take is which has gotten actually renewed energy in these first weeks of Bidenism, I think, is that this is a good thing. This is maybe maybe at worst a neutral thing. But actually, I think uh, there's a tendency to argue that it's a good thing, that it strengthens the Democratic coalition. It, it provides a base of um, reliable uh, voters at midterm elections, you know, is a one narrow kind of electoralist argument, which is which is fair to some extent. And that it uh, but but the more ambitious version of the argument is that it is actually driving the Democratic Party to the left. It's pushing progressive. It's making more. The, the Biden coalition was less working class than the Obama coalition. Grant that. 
but it's more economically progressive than Obama. So, you know, QED, these professionals are pushing the party to the left. Now, I think there are a lot of problems with the logic of that. And in fairness, to that argument, it, it has there's there's there are more details to it. But I think that's the impulse. And I think there's no and this is where it does get a little more complicated, especially given, you know, I, I do take seriously the fact that, you know, the comparisons between the Biden stimulus and the Obama stimulus and the fact that there are there is a broader movement. I think not just within the Democratic Party, on the, in the Republican Party, in parties all over Europe, t- away from the age of austerity that was really regnant 10 years ago. There is a new kind of macroeconomic common sense that, uh, and a new, you know, sort of um, acceptance, both from the top down and from the bottom up, that it's normal and good for the government to just give cat- cut checks to people. And that's something that Trump did. That's something that Mitch McConnell did. That's something that, you know, Biden and Schumer are doing. Um, and so I, I'm, I think that's a that's a win for the left, for the American people. But I think we shouldn't overstate to which the, the extent to which that is a triumph for, for left politics or a the road to a, 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 a new, you know, in effect, a new deal in our economy and our politics, which I think so, is the, the most excited version of these, of these uh, triumphalist takes. Kind of one and, of and a point you made in your most uh, recent Jackman piece is that the American Rescue Plan isn't really grappling with big questions of wealth and power, and therefore doesn't really represent a new paradigm of liberalism or progressivism. Yeah, my, my argument is, and my argument, uh, uh, to put it as simply and as broadly as I can with the people who say, no, look, we're in a new era and the, these these um, these new progressive suburbanites are actually totally fine with all the left-wing politics you could want. Basically, my argument is not that they're going to drive the party to the right, which is how some people kind of glossed the take. And that would be obviously untrue. They're not driving it to the right. But that basically they put a break on how far this coalition can ever go to the left, you know, um, which for some people maybe is a good thing. But I think from a social democratic perspective, from even from somebody who's actually seeking a new New Deal, it's not a good thing. It's not that it drives the party to the right. It's that it, it puts a limit on what kind of left wing politics are available that, that remain in the field of contention. I mean, you know, yeah, sure. There are a number of of, of suburban progressives who are supporting Medicare for all. And that number seems to be stable in the House, for instance. But it's clear also that the triumph of Biden and the defeat of Sanders meant that Medicare for all is off the table for the time being as a Democratic Party thing. It was defeated. I mean, we should acknowledge that. It demonstrated, Sanders demonstrated the broad support that Medicare for all uh, has within the Democratic coalition, within the country, I think. Support, I think, that could sustain even propaganda directed against it, but it did not win support within the Democratic Party, you know, leadership, or ultimately that support wasn't strong enough to sort of elect to pick the Democratic leader, the Democratic president. And so that's not going to happen. I think other big structural reforms, I don't expect a big wealth tax to happen. I don't expect a big universal free college program to happen. I don't expect uh, a job guarantee to happen. I don't expect Frankly, the $15 minimum wage has already not happened, and I don't expect it to suddenly reanimate. I don't expect uh, the PRO Act for Labor, uh, which is an ambitious, although still, I think, short of transformative, but an ambitious uh, sort of labor uh, labor proposal that's passed the House. I don't expect that to get through the Senate. I don't expect this party to prioritize those kinds of structural attempts to change the structure of the economy. And I don't expect this coalition to be able to deliver those kinds of changes. And so I think while we're crowing about a relative difference between Biden to Obama, 
we should be aware of the extent to which we're watching the ship of an actual New Deal style realignment sail very, very far away. Matt, you sound as though you are yourself edging toward the third of the uh, reactions you mentioned toward uh, class alignment, which is resignation. Yeah, that's the most powerful one, because the truth is I don't have an answer for how to immediately you know, press the eject button on this, because it does feel like a historic process uh, in a lot of ways that and this is what the the sort of more downbeat and 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 you know terrestrially minded kind of party operatives even you know on the on the liberal left will say it's like okay yeah this is not actually great it sucks that we're losing even unionized workers now in places like Ohio and, and Michigan it sucks that we're losing you know latino workers in places like Florida and Texas this is not going to be beneficial to a broader politics of sort of to benefit the working class to rely primarily if not exclusively on in effect the kind of charitable instincts of um, of managers professionals and 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 upper middle class folk that that that, that, that that's a problem but how do we stop it how do we stop it and my argument here is is I don't have the magic card to play but the argument in the piece is that we should be aware of two things. This is a broad historic trend, but it's also something that the Democratic Party has actively chosen. And I think we should bear in mind that they've said so explicitly. Chuck Schumer has made this point. We want to trade one working class voter in Western Pennsylvania for uh, two suburbanites in Philadelphia. And this has been the choice that left center parties have made all across the developed world. They maybe perceive themselves as reacting to historical trends, but then they have absolutely cracked the whip on those trends and driven them forward. Trump further accelerated those trends because he was pushing the opposite direction, as are you know, some concurrents in the Republican Party still want to do so ambivalently, to kind of imagine themselves as a working class anti-elite party in, in, a, in a primarily cultural sense, but uh, maybe increasingly with some openness towards anti-elite populism and economics too. But Democrats have absolutely seized that as a chance to claim the mantle as the party of responsibility, sanity, decorum, rational discourse, the values of a highly educated upper middle class. You know, science is real. What was that, uh, that ubiquitous yard sign that we all saw in <laughs> certainly Montgomery County? Uh, it, would pl- it would be probably the cover of my Montgomery County elegy. You know, love is love. Science is real. All immigrants are welcome. Immigrants are, you know, women's rights are human rights. It was a lot of, in effect, you know, liberal common sense mixed with kind of tautologies. But the effect of it is to say anyone who dissents from this brand of politics is not only a sort of a political opponent, but lacking in, you know, basic moral common sense. And it's that kind of, you know, professional class othering of all opposition, whether whether Trumpist or far left or, or whatever, that I think is actually heightening and encouraging this process that is that 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 increases this cultural partisanship, this kind of um, I, this partisan identity politics that's different from a, a racial identity politics or a, or or a or a gender identity politics draws on all of those, but has fueled its own kind of uh, specific alchemy that that, that that says, if you're not with us, you're against us. And that includes a huge section, therefore, of the working class that we're no longer, uh, not only are we no longer really trying to appeal to, much less centering in our demands or, or organizing our, our real political priorities around, we're actually 
outright antagonizing and, and proudly so. And that is a is a trend that sure some of these people will then say no of course we want them to vote the right way but if they don't why should I stop myself from calling them fascists? And I think that tendency not that I, I want to say that uh, you know working class Latinos in in Sweetwater Florida were you know Nicaraguan immigrants were put off by Rachel Maddow's condescension on MSNBC it doesn't work in a one to one way like that but the broader transfiguration of the Democratic Party brand and what it stands for into the party that knows best and isn't afraid to say so is to me, rather than the party that will give you stuff, is to me a problem. Now, is Biden in some ways himself actually trying to push back against some of this? I think he might be as a sort of himself, a cultural relic of this mid 20th century class aligned politics. And in that sense, he there is a modicum of hope there that in his own focus on a kind of material politics and his his shift away from the neoliberal turn towards this you know new Keynesian budgetary liberalism um, he is much more comfortable you know in that world than in this kind of politics of of othering that I think a lot of Democrats increasingly are, are would prefer to play in so. Maybe that's a cheering sign. My fear, though, is that it's actually a kind of dead cat bounce, if you will, of the old of, of this older 20th century liberalism that once Biden himself is removed from the scene and is replaced with the sort of younger generation of Pete Buttigieg's and Kamala Harris's and um, and others who are much more comfortable in 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 these these newer waters, then the Democrats will lose any residual ability to beat to sort of present themselves as a party of sort of material benefit rather than a party of moral judgment. It's interesting that uh, Biden has not weighed in one way or another on cultural issues like the putative cancellation of Dr. Seuss, for example. Right, uh, right, right. It, it's absolutely the Republicans who want to drive that, but there are forces within the Democrats that want to meet them at every at every turn. And yeah, Biden is not among those, uh, for, which is, to, in my mind, a good thing for now. And so, you know, what do you see as the way forward then? You know, if we're talking about historical analogies, one could point out that the best known socialist of the early 20th century was Eugene V. Debs, who actually had his own separate socialist party, or at least was it, was its frequent presidential candidate. Is that the uh, the aisle to go? Is is or is the proper course to be in a kind of reinvigoration of the labor movement? I mean, what do you see as the way forward for the kind of change you would like to see? Yeah, I think third partyism is a dead end. It doesn't work in this in this era. It's so hard to make any movement on the ballot. We saw that actually saw that in my own sort of gentrifying district of, of Brooklyn, where, you know, in 2017, uh, uh, Jabari Brisport ran for state uh, for, for city council, actually on the Green and Socialist Party ticket. And the local DSA chapter got very involved. And he won a remarkable, you know, 25 percent of the vote as a third party, you know, socialist green candidate uh, running, you know, against the Democrat, but was still obviously swamped. Then he ran again in this most recent cycle for state Senate as a Democrat, won the Democratic Party primary is now in Albany. And so electorally, there's it's it's a it's a it's a fool's errand to try to build a third party. I think it's not going to get off the ground. We don't have the organizational capacity to do it. The action, the fight is within the Democratic Party. That said, I think, and some people see this, some people on the left, I say this, and this is a, another distinct breed to continue your intra-left education, uh, Jeff. <laughs> Thank this you. is another distinct breed from the, you know, say Vox, you know, Vox-style triumphalists of, you know, of, 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 the, of progressive suburbanites as the key towards 
towards a new progressive order. Uh, this is the sort of more DSA optimist take, which is, you know, actually we're having real success at the local, municipal, and even state level winning some seats as open socialists, not as, um, not merely as, uh, as, as sort of, you know, Warrenite progressives, but as actual socialists. Jabari Brisport, Julia Salazar in the state Senate in New York, other city councilors in Chicago and, and, and Los Angeles and elsewhere as actual socialists, the, the expanded squad in Congress, um, several of whom, like Cori Bush, I think is a member of, of DSA herself, and that this is a path forward for the left just to kind of burrow within the Democratic Party, but maintaining a kind of socialist identity. I'm skeptical about that, too, unfortunately, because I think it in its own way is actually a kind of as I think liberal critics of this view have pointed out, and here I, I sort of have to agree with them, that it is itself kind of parasitical on the larger trend of kind of cultural progressivism carrying the day with maybe some economics smuggled in. All of these, you know, kind of new left candidates have largely not been elected by turning Brooklyn's black working class into socialists, but by, or St. Louis's, North, turning North, the black North side of St. Louis into into socialists, but basically by gentrifiers like myself, you know, voting for the DSA candidate. And, you know, it has also largely been won on the backs of class dealignment. And there's not really much evidence that the, the, the new sort of socialist mini trend in American politics is actually coming from a deep, organic or even structurally significant connection to the working class, but is just the sort of more hyper liberalized version of this sort of, you know, new professional managerial class liberalism. So it on its own cannot be a way forward either. I think it's great that these candidates are winning. I'd rather have Jabari Brisport in office than, you know, his opponent. I campaigned for him even. But that's not the answer. I think the last thing has got to be the thing, what you said, the labor movement. It's got to be, there's got to be, and maybe there is some way that this new, that that this new, what, you know, uh, I think Vox is called post-material materialism, the way in which these, you know, wealthy suburban progressives in some ways vote against their, are willing in some ways, some context to vote against the, their their interests most narrowly defined in order to support social equality, economic, some degree of economic equality. If that energy can be directed specifically toward the labor movement and can help give the labor movement a shot in the arm in some way. You saw this. I mean, this is a, the instrumentalization of this is Joe Biden speaking up on behalf of the Amazon work union drive. Uh, if that can actually be harnessed and utilized, maybe there is an end run around this that then the labor movement itself, which is really the only proven force in human history that has actually succeeded in organizing and giving egalitarian meaning to working class politics. If the labor movement can be revivified in a meaningful way in the private sector, as well as the public sector, the dependent, the, the dominance of public sector unions, you know, is, is, is something that has limited the labor, the labor movement. I mean, not that teachers unions and so on aren't important. I fully support them, but we need to re-expand this movement into the private sector and to sort of claw back some power from capital, you know, at the point of production, essentially. And if that can't happen, I don't think there is a future for, for class politics. So that's the, that, the real question is, how do you make that happen? That's got to be what happens. I, and, and, you know, people are working on it, but it's, it's hard to see that that's right around the corner. I think unionization is important. And in fact, you know, there's a certain amount of tension being given to this on the right. Uh, Orrin Cass, an American Compass, for example, 
have yes. come out in defense of labor unions as intermediate institutions that benefit working people and families and communities. Do you see that as a kind of red flag or is there something actually that might be worth building on there? No, I don't see that as a red flag. I, I, I see it as part of the same trend, you know, the same broader movement away from, you know, the ap apogee of neoliberalism 10, 20, you know, 25 years ago, that even the right is, is some elements of the right are recognizing the limits of this kind of atomization. So that doesn't mean that I think that, you know, Josh Hawley and, and Bernie Sanders are ready to walk arm in arm down the Senate and, and pass a labor bill because the distance between some of these, if you will, union curious intellectuals on the right and actual right wing donors and politicians is still, in my mind, fairly immense. And the fact that people on the some people on the right, like, you know, Hawley or Rubio are willing to say nice things about unions. I don't think it's totally meaningless. I don't want to I don't think we should completely discount it, but I think we should bear in mind the immense distance between that and actually supporting the politics of actual labor organization against interests of business and, and business lobbies um, on the ground. When that happens, then we may be really seeing some interesting realignment. Uh, until then, I'm saying, oh, this is great. Let's let, let's hear more of that, please. But I'm not I'm not putting too much stock into it. I think ultimately, you know, I think there has to be a politics that there has to be a uh, the answer can't be strictly electoral here. You know, uh, like I'm mostly interested in electoral politics. That's kind of how what I study. That's what I'm that's the book I'm working on in the 19th century. That's what I've been writing about in Jacobin. But I think the struggle for labor has to be conducted on the shop floor in a way that isn't totally dependent on what happens at the ballot box. And so maybe we're seeing signs that the labor movement has found some new ways in, you know, certainly in the public sector that that's happened the teacher strikes and so on of the last few years have, have produced some real victories. And maybe maybe this Amazon movement, um, maybe some other things that the Teamsters and other unions are doing can can yield some real material benefits. Uh, the jury's still out, but that's what I'm looking looking towards. And yet, you know, there are some tensions even within the progressive end of the Democratic Party in terms of how this might happen. Alec McGillis has got a new book called Fulfillment, which is about sort of the Amazonization of the country. And he says that in many ways, the Democratic Party right now is the Amazon party. Uh, it's your neighbors in Brooklyn who get all of these packages delivered to them by a mostly brown and black workforce, and that there are obvious tensions between the perspectives of those two ends, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's that jibes with, you know, my analysis of the election returns. Um, that it's the Amazon customer, not the worker, that seems to be the most jazzed up part of the of the Democratic coalition and who the Democrats are catering to, uh, both in their rhetoric and, and, and sort of self-presentation, but to some extent in their policy, too. Now, we'll see. I mean, this is where it will be really interesting to see to what extent Democratic politicians and, if you will, liberal intellectuals are willing to sort of disclaim this identity as the party of Amazon. Right now, many of them are, are uncomfortable with it and certainly don't want to be tarred that way. But what risks are they willing to run? What burdens are they willing to carry in order to avoid that label, if you will? And it's, it's complicated because I do think that there is some support within significant support. I mean, the PRO Act, I think, has 45 sponsors in the Senate. So it's not the case that mainline Democratic politicians are not willing to support labor because you know, Maria Cantwell of Washington, say, is, you know, wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. Like, that's that's not true. And yet this this happened under Obama, too. You know, the Democrats have this like sort of weak, this like 
superficially broad, but ultimately token support for labor and their actual priorities. They're unable to get over the top. They're unable to provide pressure when they need it on certain members. And they're unable to sort of actually put their eggs in a basket, run real risks in order uh, to sort of win these things for the working class, risk losing in order to win. And in practice, the result is that the centrality of Amazon is unchallenged. And the fact that you have 45 co-sponsors to an act that never actually, you know, gets onto the floor doesn't, you know, doesn't mean shit. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that that's the perspective, that's the perspective of, of, of a, that may be the perspective of a skeptical worker. And it would be hard for a Democratic Party operative to sort of argue against that. You know, there's a certain kind of conservative who would argue that uh, unions in American history have actually been kind of an anti-socialist force. Uh, you know, there's that famous Werner Sombart quote about all socialist utopias running aground on the shoals of roast beef and apple pie. But also, uh, from what little I remember of my training in 19th century American history, I do remember that Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor, was was pretty hostile toward socialists. And his quote, which again, I'm probably going to mess up, is, you know, economically or unsound, socially or wrong, industrially or an impossibility. And so I wonder if the labor movement is actually the route for a would-be socialist to take in the here and now. Yeah, it's complicated. And I, I think, you know, you saw a modern iteration of some of those um, tensions in the arguments about Medicare for all and would, would, would that affect union health plans and the reluctance of, of, of a lot of important private sector unions, especially to sort of get behind the Sanders campaign and even the broad to really put muscle behind the sort of the broad universalistic welfare state ideas uh, in the in the air today. So I don't want to say that there aren't both real sort of, sort of like material and, and sectoral interests uh, that, that, that can collide and that that is a, a bygone problem. But I think ideologically, the sort of the base, the even deeper tension between, say, Gompers and the left I think the, I don't know, I think the CIO in the 30s kind of cleared that up a little bit. I think the experience of the New Deal era, to some extent, showed the way in which a fusion between uh, a broad-minded, you know, labor organizing um, and a pro-labor electoral politics was actually essential in creating the breakthrough. You know, the Wagner Act made, you know, mass unionization possible. And by the same token, the labor organizations of the 1930s helped make the Wagner Act possible. And to me, that kind of symbiosis is the, is the only way that our, I won't even say socialist, but social democratic goals can be attained. So I'm less hung up on some sort of elemental or existential tension between those two things. I think that's a question, those are questions that need to be, you know, adjudicated and managed with care and with tact. But I think in a broad sense, Frankly, uh, this is not m my specialty, but my sense of, you know, unions today rank and file with maybe only a few exceptions. There is um, an openness towards progressive and left wing policy in a broad sense. There is a sense that, you know, a kind of uh, we're in trouble and we're been squeezed and uh, we're not hewing to the, you know, the, the centrist common sense of some sort of, you know, union bureaucracy you know, that union bureaucracy hashes out with business leadership and the DNC in order to reject all possibility of, of serious reform. I don't I don't have a sense that that sort of force of, say, you know, mid late 20th century unionism that also pushed back against radical or socialist politics 
is so powerful today, or at least is, is insurmountable today, given, in some ways, given the weakness of labor itself. My feeling is that labor itself is happy at this point to have any allies that it can in an increasingly hostile environment. And if progressive politicians are going to come along and say, we're going to make it easier to join a union, we're going to boost union membership, we're going to strengthen you know, union power at the negotiating table, then they will absolutely welcome that. That's not where the, where the danger lies, in my view. Again, I could be misremembering here, but I seem to remember that the Wagner Act was preceded by the Norris LaGuardia Act, which was co-sponsored by two Republicans. Uh, and the Republican Party used to have a fairly significant pro-labor component to it, and that the interest of labor might be well served by supporting pro-labor Republicans here and now. True. I mean, that would be, that, again, that, that would be a lovely development, you know, Jeff, from my perspective, if 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 we actually saw the emergence of substantively pro-labor Republicans, if, if there were if there were such a thing, as you can imagine, as a, you know, Rubio Hawley Act of, of 2026. I mean, this is, you know, this is stretches the bounds of my imagination. But if if that was the act that paved the way for, you know, a massive expansion of unionization in the United States, even 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 with a hop, skip and a jump in between, I would take it uh, in, in a heartbeat. I mean, I do think the Republican Party has acquired uh, this identity as the party of working class in a fit of absence of mind and has these uncomfortable, unfamiliar clothes that it doesn't really quite know how to wear. And, you know, it's going to be a long time before the party can adjust to the fact it actually did improve its performance among minority working class members in 2020. But, you know, when I think about one of the issues uh, being put forward, certainly from the Sanders camp uh, and other progressives, uh, it's for free college for all. And yet the cause that would actually seem to better serve the working class would be uh, vocational training, uh, job placement programs, you know, uh, this this sort of, uh, of, of program more geared toward the needs of the two thirds of people who do not actually have college degrees in this country. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on that. I don't think that there has to be. Uh, we have to live in the opposition between these, the antagonism between these two ideas. I, my, my view is that that free college for all would lower the boundaries of entry for in a, in a significant and substantive way for um, a lot of uh, a lot of non college educated Americans, and um, would help produce, you know, something like what, you know, free college for all isn't a, isn't a totally utopian scheme. I mean, that was basically the state of California in, you know, the 1950s and sixties in effect. So, and, and, in it, it went hand in hand also in, in Europe and in other places, you know, either free or virtually free college attendance, I think has correlated historically with deepening social equality. So I'm not, concern, I don't go all in on people who say, oh, this is a giveaway to the PMC or something like that. I don't think that's right or the way that we should see it. That said, I don't think that that's the summit of our aspirations either. And I do think that it should be paired with and connected to innovative and and really expansive, ambitious policy to support people who aren't going to get college education. So whether that's vocational training, I mean, my still my favorite version of this kind of policy is some sort of broad public job guarantee whose details still need to be would, would need to be worked out. And I'm not an economist on this, but I think the essence of giving every American who wants to work a decent paying job, you know, is a really powerful, both synthetic idea um, for and sort of horizon for a sort of social democratic society and something that has broad popular appeal, at least could if it uh, if it emerged right and beyond, well beyond the the educated you know, the educated top third. 
the, the people in your circles who talk about these things, are they talking about a revival of Humphrey Hawkins or something different, do you think? You know, I'm not, this is where I lose my, I don't have the policy chops for this exactly. I think there's, uh, there are versions of, yeah, you know, sort of full employment, you know, other mechanisms to push full employment in the, in the mold of Humphrey Hawkins. There are other people who are really push, you know, basically public jobs in the manner of a revived WPA. I don't think I have the the details on on that, and you know probably shouldn't talk about it too much. But I think that direction that I think that's a policy frontier that, in some ways, you know, has attracted some attention. But there's also I was reading an interesting article in the the New Statesman the other day about the way in which actually that kind of um, structural welfareist impulse, even as it's gotten some attention, has largely been pushed aside by basically cash welfareism, by you know universal basic income, and w- which we're seeing the government essentially do during COVID. We're seeing even states and municipalities experiment with this all over the Atlantic world. And I feel like that's the direction that a lot of things are going. I would prefer a more substantively institutionally driven welfareism that isn't just concerned with distribution, but is concerned with, in effect, the relationship between individuals and the market, and that works to claw back some sort of power and independence and dignity from where people are, are don't just have a little bit more purchasing power in the market, but are actually able to sort of construct the, you know, construct their basic dignity independent from those forces. Matt, there was a passage in your uh, article in Jacobin that I wondered if you could expand upon. You wrote that forging a real class interest also requires fighting back against a national political order that works to undermine it at every turn. That means a left-wing electoral struggle aimed strategically not just at Republicans or even at moderates, but at the partisan alignment itself, the gargantuan clash of identities that sucks all material politics into the infinity war of blue versus red. So how would one go about combating this partisan culture, as you call it? It's a delicate dance, and this is the this is the piece of the article that's really focused. Um, again, to take you under the hood of of intra left conversations, to me that is aimed at basically the post Bernie Sanders left, and I'm aware of this temptation uh, in the era of Trump, especially that has that has become very strong for you know say the Squad and its affiliates to basically don the mantle of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and to simply accept everything that the Democratic Party does is something that we also stand for, its enemies, its values. Uh, we just are, we just want more of what they want. We are just even more Democrat than they are. And I'm wary of that approach, which I do, do think differs from the way that Sanders himself navigated a pragmatic alliance with Democratic leaders and the Democratic Party itself, which which he absolutely did and did not, you know, gadfly about refusing to pass veterans bills because he was an independent socialist. You know, absolutely a pragmatic alliance with the party that's willing to deliver the goods when it is willing to deliver the goods with an independent sensibility that does look, especially in an era when class politics is disappearing, that does look to class above party and does not concentrate its, its, its energy on stoking the kind of very predictable but very viral partisan feuds with predictable viral enemies in order to sort of generate fundraising and attention and support and energy that but that only deepen this purportedly independent left wing of the Democratic Party with the leadership of the Democratic Party. And so it's a, it's a delicate act of sort of performance politics. But my sense is that the, you know, the AOC generation, in effect, is much more comfortable with, with, with basically doing that and is less interested in 
in anything like an independent class politics, in pursuing that rhetorically, in positioning itself as at least as interested in class as party, I think it's much more, It's in its current configuration, it seems to be leaning much more into both partisan affiliation and a kind of hyper, um, a, a sort of an intensified version of the sort of the moralism of you know, the progressive Democratic Party in general. It, it wants to, the squad wants to fight about Dr. Seuss to some extent, um, or at least some, there are some tendencies in there. And I think that would be a huge catastrophic mistake for the DSA left, for the post-Sanders left, for um, any left that in, as it grows has an interest in presenting itself as something distinct from the progressive value machine. But as long as you're letting me uh, look under the hood of this particular uh, left-wing uh, hoopty, can you tell me if it makes a lot of sense to describe Bernie Sanders as a democratic socialist rather than a social democrat? He has, after all, said that his ideal is Denmark, uh, which is not a democratic socialist state, but is a, a great example of a functioning uh, social democratic society. I can't think of what exactly Sanders wants to nationalize in terms of industries, at this point, however much he might have wanted to nationalize back in his impetuous youth. Does it make sense to actually retain this label, given that its major function seems to be to turn off Latin American voters who have bad memories of what goes on uh, back in Venezuela? Yeah, I mean, I would say in defense of, of, of Bernie, I, I still think he is a democratic socialist in aspiration, even if he's a social democrat in you know political practice and in rhetoric, because he is intimately aware, I think, in a pragmatic way that has you know always... Um, you know, we've all always admired about him, even his critics admire about him that, you know, pitching himself as the legatee of, of FDR, and to some extent Denmark, rather than Debs, and say Cuba, makes political sense in the United States. And that's the most important thing to do to build the movement. I still think in his bones, uh, Bernie is left of Denmark, but that's just my my sense of his aspiration. He's, it's, you're right. There's very little evidence in the in the in the platform of Sandersism. I think it's fair to say that Sandersism beyond Bernie probably is more social democratic than democratic socialist. Okay, are we? To what extent am I committed to these labels? I mean, I think there's been a lot of work done to sort of normalize socialism. The, the, the positive side of the ledger is to say, okay, look, they're going to call you socialist no matter what you do. If you want to increase the corporate tax rate by, you know, a half a percent, they're going to call you socialist. So let's just accept that label and say, well, what does actual socialism mean? It means giving people, you know, making sure that people have the right to a, a house, a job, an education and a dignified life, regardless of their position in the market. If that's what socialism means, you know, sign me up. It sounds pretty good. And there've been, there've been, you know, opinion polling progress in that vein. I think there are also costs to that in the sense that it, it to some extent has identified it's made socialism kind of a niche project of the same, you know, kind of, uh, you know, PMC group that I've been, we've been talking about while not really attracting certain ideology skeptic voters out there yes including principally the i think the 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 latin american immigrants from you know nicaragua or or venezuela are like a classic example of this but i think there are, there are other more muffled currents in the working class that probably feel the same way about socialism that just that just feels too extreme or that feels like different or other in some way so i think there are costs to that that said i'm not ready to junk it just yet um i think there's still a, a place to have make a distinction between basically political orientation and political aspiration. And to me, even the lesson of really existing social democracy in the 60s and 70s 
suggests its limits as an aspiration. I think it's desperately needed as an orientation, but I think as an aspiration, we saw it break down and collapse under um, under the the weight of its of its enemies and maybe even its own contradictions. And so I think I still have the you know personally idealistic view that that it is possible to transcend social democracy and enter into something like a democratic socialism. But whether that that aspiration should be front and center in in left wing politics today is is not something I'm I'm passionate about. I mean, I have no uh, qualifications to psychoanalyze Bernie, um, but it seems to me that what part of what attracts him to the socialist idea is uh, Andre Malraux's idea of Marxism, not so much as a doctrine, but as a will, uh, a will to feel proletariat, but also to feel part of a movement and a revolution, maybe. And I was actually kind of struck by the affinity between that impulse and your observation that the Civil War was not caused by slavery. It was caused by an anti-slavery movement. And the role that that movement plays in your historical work and understanding seems very important. No, I think that's dead on about about Bernie, actually. You're right. And I think it's probably that movementism, even more than like uh, a, a rarefied sense of abstract political economy that 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 drives the affiliation and the and the sense of his commitment to socialism. Yeah, I don't know. This is what I mean, I, I will say that my you know, the, the book I'm working on about anti-slavery politics in the 1850s and how it you know, in effect, moved from the radical fringes of politics in the 1830s as something that only zealots and fanatics cared about and was largely left out of the mainstream debate between Democrats and Whigs, both of whom spurned it from Andrew Jackson to Henry Clay, and then emerged rather suddenly in the span of less than a decade as the dominant form of politics in the North that with millions of voters organized around a politics of, yes, anti, anti-slavery, anti-slave extension. You know, the formal doctrine was about stopping slavery's exp- expansion to the West rather than any kind of immediate abolition, but nevertheless, whose moral energy drew on disgust and opposition to slavery and a stated uh, demand that it, that it be ultimately abolished or put on the road to ultimate extinction. Uh, on course of ultimate extinction, as Lincoln said. So, and that was a movement. It was a really powerful transformative reform movement that ultimately became a revolutionary one in the course of the Civil War, you know, as it led the most violent and revolutionary process of slave emancipation in the Western Hemisphere, only Haiti accepted. And I think this is still, for me, the most revolutionary moment in U.S. history. And whether now we're back in trouble again, where I'm kind of contradicting my own earlier uh, statement about wanting about the, the problems with wanting to seek this, you know, existential Armageddon with the enemy. I don't think that that's on in the cards for our situation today. I don't think a civil war for all of the the you know periodic cover stories that that foresee one. I don't I don't foresee one, but I do think for the broader left, I do think the Sanders movement tapped into that, the possibility of something called political revolution, um, which happened before the social revolution in in the 1860s. The realignment of politics in the 1850s around this cause that that came about through a fusion of both moral and material politics. The argument against slavery was really driven by an argument about the disposition of land in the West, the relationship between, uh, in, in essence, labor labor and property, 
um, which should be the controlling interest in American government, a small, tiny elite of aristocratic slaveholders, a literal 1%, if you did the math, and some of them did, like William Seward talked about, you know, there are 300,000 slaveholders in a republic of 30 million, you know, not 1%, you know, they, you know, one, not one hundredth of a percent of the population is, <laughs> is invested in this property. It, it, it sounds like 1856 Sandersism, that this kind of populist, anti-oligarchic, material and also deeply moral politics. I don't mean to, I've been attacking moralism. I don't mean to say that politics should should be amoral, that that kind of fusion uh, in the 1850s provided for a really dramatic and ultimately, I think, clearly emancipatory political revolution that for me is still part of my aspiration for where American politics could go in the 21st century. Uh, it doesn't mean it, there has to be a civil war. Matt, I know you've at least contemplated a three-volume history of the Republican Party's arc in the 19th century with the radicalism. Where did, you that? did I admit I, that? I can't remember, but somewhere. Uh, it's consolidation, and then it's corruption uh, following the end of Reconstruction and the descent into the Gilded Age. You've talked a little bit about you know your inspiration of the radicalism of the Republican Party, but you know we actually still do have a Republican Party that traces back to the 1850s. Do you think there's anything of its original ideals in its DNA? as it currently exists? Or do you subscribe more to the Heather Cox Richardson idea that the Republican Party of today is the old democratic slaveocracy of the, the, the antebellum period? It's funny, before Richardson's turn uh, into, uh, into a really spectacularly successful pundit, she, she wrote a history of the Republican Party that actually did argue for some degree of continuity from the 1850s to the present in the sense, you know, the title of the book was To Make Men Free. And it was, I mean, maybe this may, so her take might be really more about the difference between Trump and Bush than the difference between Bush and Lincoln. Um, because, you know, there are, and there are other historians, I think even uh, Eric Foner's canonical work on the formation of the Republican Party ideologically in the 1850s, free soil, free labor, free men is, you know, I think the anecdote is, is almost widely known at this point that it's Carl Rowe, it was Carl Rowe's favorite book. And he actually, <laughs> Foner told me that he, he, uh, Rove actually, you know, sent him a copy and wanted him to sign it and da, 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 because from Rowe's perspective, and I don't think Foner would entirely disagree. There are core elements of that party and its emphasis on the right to rise as, as, uh, Jeb Bush called his sort of super PAC. Uh, that's a quote from Lincoln. The idea of, you know, economic competition uh, and in the spirit of free enterprise, bringing out the best in uh, in an individual as opposed to the sort of enchainments of slave labor and, uh, you know, the fixed social condition of the South, um, the sort of desire for competition and mobility and individual sort of economic advancement. There are absolutely resonances between that and the party of Reagan and Bush Harder to see in the Trump era, but you know clearly, if you look at the Republican caucus, it's still there. So I don't want to say that there are no through lines, but on the whole, I'm strong. I mean, I think that one of my goals in this book is to dethrone that view historically and to say that the party's you know transformational change happened in the Civil War era itself. That the the party in its origins in the 50s and the 60s was uh, for all of you know you could you can cleverly trace the ideological through lines and they're not hard to see, but the way that those politics function in the context of the 50s was not primarily to sort of c congratulate a complacent economic elite or an establishment, but to overthrow that same establishment, which was itself deeply connected with slavery and the profits of slavery, and were aimed absolutely against not just 
the slaveholding class in the North, in the South, but the sort of mercantile class in the North, the, the economic elite of, 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 of the antebellum Republic, who were deeply connected with slavery, either materially or even in a deeper sense, opposed any kind of political ruckus that would overthrow the stable economic order of the society. The Republicans did not, you know, the Democrats outraised the Republicans in the antebellum elections of the 50s. You know, in 56, the Republican candidates could barely throw together a dime. They were stronger in 1860, but this was not a party of, uh, in its origins, of, of the economic elite. And it was a party of sort of confessedly social revolutionary aims to some extent. And it drew the support of other radicals from Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Frederick Douglass, who identified the struggle uh, against slavery as foundational to the struggle against other forms of, of, of profound inequality. It drew the support of large numbers of labor radicals for the same reason, who saw uh, the Homestead Act as something that was not simply a kind of safety valve for urban elites in the East, but actually an empowerment and a form of class politics designed to overthrow the ruling slaveholding class, who, which was the main opposition for that kind of, uh, you know, homestead giveaway policy. Now, of course, I don't, I don't idealize this movement at all. Uh, it also depended on the, you know, uh, the seizure of indigenous land and a bunch of other, you know, horrible things. It kowtowed to American racism in a hundred different ways. The point isn't to erect the Republican Party of the 50s as a sort of beau ideal of all, how all politics should should become. But I, I'm, a, I'm in my view, it's the story is one of change, not continuity from the 50s to even the late 19th century, much less uh, the 21st. Professor Matthew Karp, thank you so much for talking with me today and for being so generous with your time and the benefits of your scholarship and insight. Thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you.